sportsgrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. Sportsgrid.com. Oh, yeah, it's that time. Welcome in. Cover it with Teddy Covers here on Sirius XM Channel 159, the Sports Grid Radio Network. What's today? Today is Saturday. College basketball Saturday. We're going to bring in Andy Isco to break down the world of college hoops for us as we approach conference tournaments, the end of the regular season, with the big dance just around the corner. Andy Isco at Vegas Andy is going to give us his breakdown of the college basketball landscape. So it should be an entertaining and informative show with the good Andy, a guy who I've known here in Las Vegas for the better part of the last 25 years. So he's certainly someone who knows what he's talking about when it comes to experience looking at the college hoops betting marketplace. I want to talk a little bit now about a loss that I took earlier this week that I was so mad at myself for. I have Baylor against Kansas earlier in the week. And I took them full game instead of first half. And that was a dumb wager. And I want to talk about right here at the top, first half versus full game. And one particular scenario that I look for, first half versus full game in college basketball, double-digit favorites who I don't trust to maintain intensity with a big lead. Certainly those are teams that I'm looking more likely to back them first half than full game. You know this team's a lot better than their opponent. You know they're going to be up 15, 20, 25, whatever it's going to be. But you don't know they're going to maintain their intensity down the stretch. That's a classic first half spot. Another classic first half spot is the opposite side of that equation. Double-digit dog, a big dog. You know, they're going to compete. They're interested. You expect them to hang around. At some point, they're going to get outclassed. Double-digit dogs are a team that, at times, I'm looking to bet on them first half as opposed to full game, just like double-digit favorites. But there's another scenario that needs to be on that list. Teams who are struggling after halftime, in particular teams that have had a really bad second-half showing of late, and maybe you don't trust them in the second half next time around. Baylor was coming off that complete collapse against Kansas in the second half. They led by double, they led by 17 in the first half of that game. Ended up getting blown off the floor and lost by double digits. Uh, double digit lead at halftime at the end of the game, double digit loss. They got annihilated in that second half. So, what happened against Kansas? Well, <laughs> They didn't have a double-digit lead, but they basically they did the same thing. I mean, they, the first half was come and go, was spotty. That said, they went on a big run before halftime, like a 21-3 run, and had a halftime lead. What happened in the second half? Kansas woke up. <laughs> Kansas said, forget that run. And Baylor did the exact same thing that they'd done in their previous game. You know, not getting back on defense, not rebounding well. And when the crowd got into it, it was all over for the Bears. Should have been a first-half bet. Said the first half bet would have won. Said it was a full game bet, and the full game bet lost. Teams tell us who they are 
by this stage of the campaign. It's our job to pay attention to make money off of what they're telling us. Baylor in hostile environments right now, yeah, they're first half bets, not full game bets, if you're going to get involved with the Bears. And there was something else that surprised me this past week. I mean, I know that, in my mind, wasn't so much of a surprise. It was a bad choice by me. I didn't make the right decision as to the right way to bet the game. The handicap mm, wasn't where it should have been. The handicap should have been a first half versus a full game. Here's one where I was legitimately surprised. You know, Ole Miss struggling every way. They fired their coach after the game. You know, uh, Kermit gone. They're down by double digits in the second half at Auburn. And Auburn is an explosive team. They create turnovers. They're known for their scoring runs, especially at home where they run teams out of the gym. So Ole Miss struggling every way. Auburn in a get-right spot, leading by doubles in the second half at home. If you ask me in that scenario, who's going to go on the 13 and nothing run? Who's going to take over the game with a 13 nothing run? I'd make Auburn a $5 favorite over Ole Miss to go on a 13 nothing run. You know, Auburn at home versus Ole Miss on the road, down double digits in the second half in the midst of an ugly skid. And yet what happened? <laughs> Ole Miss with a 13 nothing run in the second half. That turned a double-digit deficit into a road lead. They hit shots. They got rebounds. They got out on the fast break. And they turned a potential blowout into a tight game. And Auburn never pulled away after that. They ended up winning the game by four. And that game, and again, I don't like coming on the show, oh, this is a game, a bet I lost. That's a bet I lost. It's been a decent, it's been a pretty good uh, run in college hoops. But it's important to talk about losers and go back. I call it a post-mortem. Understand why you lost this bet. Understand how not to make that same mistake moving forward. And this one, with Auburn and Ole Miss, I was just shocked. You know, it's not what I expected. And let talks to me about the time. Here we are late February. This is a tricky time in college hoops. These are young kids. They're all, you know, 21 or younger. They have much bigger games ahead. We talk about conference tournament times. We talk about the NCAA tournament times. There's a fair bit of randomness this week and next in college hoops. I'm going to lower my NCAA volume right here, right now. This is not a time where I'm peppering the board with wagers. That'll come when conference tournaments start. Now and then, we lower the volume, and we're ready to pick back up as soon as we get the opportunities to do so. Coverage continues with Andy Isco after this. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. Welcome back. Cover it with Teddy Covers here on Sirius XM Channel 159, the Sports Grid Radio Network. Based on my math skills, my math skills are okay. They're not great, but they're okay. I see 194 teams playing today on a college basketball Saturday, which means 97 games on the regular board. And then you throw in the extra games on the extra board, and you're going to get another 66 teams playing. Uh, and then you have in-game wagering. That's 33 more games. Then you have in-game wagering in first half and second half. There is a plethora of betting options available, as there is every college basketball Saturday. Let's bring in Andy Isco. 
to break it down with us at Vegas Andy on Twitter. And Mr. Isco, welcome to the Cover It with Teddy Covers. Thank you for joining me today. Always a pleasure, Teddy. And yeah, this may actually be the last of those really huge Saturday college basketball schedules because, of course, a lot of the smaller conferences begin their conference tournaments, I think, as early as uh, uh, this coming Monday. I think it may be the Atlantic Sun that gets underway as we're getting down to uh, uh, Selection Sunday, which is uh, two weeks uh, from uh, from uh, tomorrow, uh, which will uh, mean that the conclusion of the basketball season is rapidly approaching, but it's also the best time of the season. Yeah, it certainly is. Now, I find late February to be one of the most difficult times in college basketball, personally. Uh, this is a time of year where I tend to lower my volume. And then as we get into conference tournament action, look, for as much as you love the big dance, don't forget there will be more games played on the Wednesday of conference tournament season or the Thursday or the Friday of conference tournament season than for the entirety of the NCAA tournament. In my mind, conference tournament weekends, there's two of them, this uh, next weekend and especially the weekend after, that's the best opportunities you're going to have in college basketball. Um, And the NCAA tournament, from a betting standpoint, we like it, but it tends to be a little bit overrated. Agree or disagree? I largely agree because, first of all, when you're talking about the conference tournaments, and of course the major ones will be in two weeks, uh, the uh, uh, the mid and the minors will be next week for the most part, but those conference tournaments, of course, begin during the week. So like even for the huge tournaments like the, the Big East and the Big Ten, etc., the SEC, they'll start their tournaments on Wednesday and Thursday when virtually every team uh, in the conferences is, is, uh, is playing. So you could have games starting at uh, 9 a.m. Pacific noon Eastern and not ending until somewhere past 11 p.m. Pacific, which is 2 a.m. Eastern time. You know, on that uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when you start having the playing around before you get to the quarterfinals, etc. A lot of opportunities, and as you pointed out at the top, you've got pregame, in-game, halftime, sides, totals, etc. Uh, it, 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 in, in many respects, the NCAA tournament itself is a bit of a letdown, other than the significance of it being the final game of the season, let's say, for uh, 67 of the 68 teams who will end their seasons with a loss, leaving us with just one champion. But uh, certainly the excitement, I think the tournaments with all those games does get you at a certain excitement level for the start of the uh, games where every game is huge. And make no mistake about it, from a betting standpoint, conference tournaments are better than the big dance, period. And we're going to talk about why on this show I'm going to talk about why on next week's show. I'm going to talk about why on the following week's show. (laughs) There is more opportunities in the conference tournaments to make good, positive expectation bets than you will in the big dance. It's just that simple. There's more. The big dance is for the casual fan. For the serious better, conference tournament time is by far second to none. But we're not there yet. We still have... 97 games on today's college basketball card on the regular board. Another 33 on the added board. It's a huge slate. Give me your thought process. for How do you start to break down a card like this every week in college hoops? Are you going through every single game? Are you eliminating teams a priori? How do you do the work to turn 130 potential bets into a handful of good ones? 
let's take a well. Okay, this is a good Saturday to do so. Ninety-seven uh, main board games, and then another couple of dozen or so uh, added board uh, or extra games. I guess they call them now. Uh, I'll scan the schedule for what I uh, for what I find to be attractive matchup from the perspective of are the two teams playing one another? Are there seeding possibilities or, or tournament making possibilities? Are there teams that I've had decent reads on throughout the uh, season? So I will my initial look at the schedule, let's say 97 games, I might eliminate, say, 30 of them immediately because either I have no interest in them or the games are going to involve point spreads where at this time of the year I'm not going to get involved in games where there are uh, point spreads of, let's say, 18 points or more where unless there's a specific reason to be on or against one of those teams, which will have nothing to do with the ability of those teams normally, I just eliminate that. So, so I'm down from like 97 to, let's say, oh, let's round it off to like 65. Then I'll go through those games and of course, uh, I believe almost all of them are conference games now. There might be one scattered one where it might be a traditional uh, uh, season-ending uh, foe. Now, this, of course, is not the last game of the season for a lot of these teams because they'll finish up their schedule during the week and then next weekend, but it will be the final home game for a lot of teams, and I will often take a look at, at those games uh, where uh, there may be some interest, again, depending upon the line, depending upon the previous results, because you know, not every game in a conference game is a rematch at the final uh, week of the season because many conferences are so large that you can only meet an opponent once, but if there's like a, uh, a rematch of, uh, of a couple of high-profile teams and it's a, um, a, a modest point spread, and usually a modest point spread, I'll consider somewhere oh, around six or less, meaning it should be a competitive game depending upon which is the home team, which is the road team, I'll do a little bit more work as far as setting those games aside, and ultimately, when I'm getting down to doing my, my in-depth breakdown I'm probably left with somewhere between 20 and 30 games on a schedule this side, which works out to, in this case, it's maybe a little bit more than the normal percentage, but normally it would be somewhere around 20 to 25% of that, game, of that day or night schedule. Yeah, I'm with you. Like Having a college basketball Saturday, I'll tend to have anywhere between you know, 15 and 25 games on my short list. And at the end of it, I might only make three bets or five bets. Exactly. But there's a big pairing out process. And I personally throw out a lot more games than you do a priori. You know, the games that I'm not looking at closely. Whether it comes to schools, I have programs I haven't followed, conferences I haven't followed, uh, point spreads that are, are right where I think they should be, games where I don't want to be betting on either of the two teams, or I don't want to be betting against either of the two teams. You know, there's a number of those. I'll throw out, personally, usually more than half the card uh, before I take a good, serious look at the rest of the games just in a matter of, uh, the, the, you know, you're scanning through, no, I know I'm not going to play this one, no, I'm not going to play that one. Um, and maybe that's too I'm much. I'm actually pretty much along the same lines because when I'm with the first part of what I mentioned before, I get my list down to say 20, 25 games on a Saturday. I really haven't looked into current form or anything. It's just teams that I either have no feel for or teams where I know I'm looking to play on quite strongly. And uh, I said, you know, if I'm going to play on one, it means I'm going to be playing against a team that I don't want to play against. So when I get down my list, my, you use the term shortlist. My shortlist might be about 20 to 25. So maybe a little bit more. And that's after eliminating. You know, the, in this case, say 65 games or so. That uh, uh, that right on the surface, I don't need to do any work. I'm not going to be interested in, in making a play on the game. 
Sure, and of course, uh, I, I use short list with uh, you know finger quotation marks because <laughs> sometimes the short list can be rather long. Uh, in college football, I know they can can be ridiculous sometimes uh, because there are fewer teams that I'm going to throw out a priori. In college football, 130 teams, and I, I try to follow them all. Yeah, in college basketball with 300 and what is it, 66, 363? I think it's 363 this year. Yeah, 363. I don't follow them all. I don't come close to following them all. I don't even follow half of them. So uh, the shirtless in college football can be a fair bit longer than the shirtless in college basketball. But of course, in college football, you got all week to think about it. When it comes to college basketball lines, what do you got? 12 hours? 24? Not that long before tip-offs on Saturday. Much more with Andy Isco coming up next. Covering continues after this. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. Welcome back. Cover it with Teddy Covers. Sirius XM Channel 159, the SportsGrid Radio Network. I like to bring handicappers on, some guys I know very well, some guys I don't know as well. But I like to bring guys on, and I want them to spill their secrets. <laughs> it's important for the purpose of the show to get info that they don't always give out. And the key, in my mind, is trying to fully understand the process of how you get from 130 games down to a handful of positive expectation wagers. And let me ask you this, Andy. I mean, you talked about breaking down and not looking at current form yet and all the different ways that you're going to uh, start getting to your shortlist in college basketball. Then when you get that shortlist, you got 20, 25 games, what websites are you looking? What websites are you using and how are you using them to turn those 20, 25 games on a shortlist into your actual bets and card for a college basketball Saturday? A lot of it depends upon the specific matchups. For the most part, of course, I'll start by seeing what the projected line will be. Uh, if I do my work, say, sometimes 24 to 48 hours in advance, depending upon what are the obligations and errands I have to take care of, I'll go to Ken Palm, because that's generally been a very good indicator of what uh, the hypothetical line would be based upon uh, his, uh, his website's power ratings. That at least will give me some idea of, of what I can expect the ballpark number to be in many games, in fact, probably even most games, it's usually within a point, point and a half, either way of what his projected uh, uh, final score is going to be. So I'll use that as a barometer as to is the game going to be as competitive as I expect it to be versus am I way off in making uh, the numbers that I keep uh, myself as far as looking at that. But I also uh, look at some of the, uh, the websites that just provide raw statistical information. I like to look at how teams are playing uh, recently over their last five games, over their last 10 games, some of that I have in my own database. I'll take a look to see, okay, if I'm looking to play an underdog, uh, let's say, of uh, between 7 and 10 points, I'll want to take a look how that team is playing, but more importantly, 
in, in games that they've lost, which is what they're expected to do in the current game, let's say, uh, if the line is, say, uh, oh, uh, seven and a half or so, how many of their losses have been within that margin versus how many losses may have been, say, by double digits or more so that they've shown a consistent or at least a steady number of games where they've not been as competitive as they're expected to be in this game, even if the line was a lot larger. I just want to see what those results are as far as a team's ability to be competitive. That's especially true when I'm looking at two teams that, say, for example, are pretty much going to be in the uh, in the tournament. And I'll also concentrate on, uh, as, as far as uh, websites go, just the ones that give a little bit more in-depth, and I don't have them exactly in front of me as far as what the names are, uh, but I'll use the Don Best screen at least for a starting point, just checking any late injury information that may have been posted regarding a game uh, that uh, that I'm considering. And again, again as, as we sort of alluded to, there are some teams uh, that uh, I've had a good feel for as far as being either correct more often than not when I'm on them and also against them as opposed to teams where I'm either one game too early or one game too late in getting those uh, games correct. So I, I don't use as much websites as perhaps I would have years ago uh, because I keep a lot of that information myself and it allows me uh, to query my database, for example, and sometimes I'll think of something that I hadn't thought of before and rather than search on a website for it, I'll be able to do the uh, research myself. So, Andy, well, when did you move to Vegas? Were you in Vegas in the 80s or was it the 90s by the time you got here? I, I, I started coming in the 80s, but I moved here permanently in uh, 1991. 91, yeah, because you were already here. Well, when I moved out here in 98, you were not only here, you were here and established as being I was, I an was authority. I, I was pre-internet. When you moved out here, the internet was still not very widely used, and there are a lot of uh, places that there are companies that did not yet have a website presence. So you still had to do a lot of the old work. You had to go down you know, to the corner newsstand to get out-of-town newspapers and things like that. Uh, so I was before all of that when they were actually. I think when I was here, they were still doing some handwritten tickets. And <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't see a whole lot of handwritten tickets, uh, betting tickets in Las Vegas anymore. I don't uh, think Sandy, as far as I know of. No, I'm trying to think if, if there were. I don't think there were any when I uh, came to town. Uh, it was already done. No, in fact, I think I there think were. There were the, here, they, had, they still they had, had the boards the that they manually moved the boards, Andy. Where they, you know, where they, they used to have that, that stations. Remember, they would have come out with all the teams and, and, and put the, the metal magnets on the boards for the next day's yes. games. Uh, that wasn't electronically done yet, but the tickets were all, uh, I think. Yeah, that, I don't that's what I was alluding to, that uh, when you got out here, the transition had pretty much completed from the old uh, whiteboard uh, chalk-written lines and teams to the uh, electronic boards that are virtually everywhere now. Well, then the reason I'm asking all right, is because obviously things are different now than they were in 1991 when it comes to the, uh, the uh, college basketball betting marketplace. And you're a guy who's... I'm not going to say reinvented your process, but you certainly have changed your methodology over the years. Tell me how. Tell me why. Um, I think. And, and talk about some of the ways that you handicap things now that are different from how you would have handicapped it, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. 
I think every handicapper has, uh, I won't call it uh, changed or maybe modified, and I actually prefer to look at it as evolved, because evolved is generally more representative of learning something and applying it, maybe putting your own little twists into it. I mean, the biggest change, for example, from 1991 through, let's say, today, is back in 1991, virtually all of the handicapping work you did uh, was by pen and paper. They, uh, uh, computers, although they had been around for about a decade, getting widespread in the middle 1980s as far as the personal computer, and then they had, I think, what they call them, the, uh, the compact computers, and they used to call them notebooks and then laptops, which are prevalent everywhere today. And uh, the ability, uh, what I would do is, I've always been a mathematically inclined person, so I used a lot of spreadsheets and database programs. Uh, started in the mid to late 80s and into the early 90s before we had the internet. I mean, it's a totally different ball game today as far as the information goes. I've always made the uh, a couple of statements that um, uh, power ratings, I used to keep power ratings back in the 1980s. And uh, when I moved out here, of course, they became more uh, useful. But I used to say that power ratings back then were the end result of all the work that you did, because you were putting things together that was not why that were not widely publicized. Today, and I'll use Ken Palm as an example, it's almost a starting point. It's what you do with those numbers that are pretty much agreed upon to be pretty good, accurate barometers based upon the widespread availability of all the information that goes into developing the power rating. So as uh, whereas in the 1980s and into the 1990s, you wanted to get to an accurate power rating, today, so many of these power ratings uh, that are widely publicized and used are the starting point, and then it becomes the intangible handicapping factor. Another saying that I've had for a long time is that handicapping is both art and science. The science is putting the numbers together. The art is in the interpretation of using the numbers. So back in the early days of my handicapping, uh, I began with the artistic part and then tried to back it up by looking at the uh, uh, developing the scientific part, the ratings. Today, the scientific part is there for you for the most part, and now it's a question of, uh, the artistic part. You know, power ratings effectively, or in a great sense, say if both of these teams play their typical game, this is what should happen. The problem is, is that most teams don't play their typical game. They usually play above or below their typical game, and then when you're looking into specific matchups, are the matchups, uh, are you matching up strength against weakness, strength against strength, almost like football handicapping uh, to a certain extent. So you've, uh, I, I basically have to take the power ratings, which I say, okay, the number is a reasonable number number, but you know, it reflects average performances or typical performances, and how can I now find uh, games in which both teams are, go are going to be atypical, one, one may play better than I expect them to do, or rather than the line expects them to do, and their opponent is not going to play as well as the line projects them to play. So one thing that I do that I couldn't have even imagined doing 20 years ago is... I like to bet against teams that I feel are power rated wrong. When you look at the Ken Palm numbers, if you've looked at Ohio State for the better part of the last two months, you know, I mean, they were still a top 40 team after they lost 10 games in a row, <laughs> uh, according to Ken Palm's numbers. Um, so I like to take, look for specifically teams who have these great advanced metrics and high powering numbers, but the play on the floor doesn't reflect that. Is that something you ever do, Andy? I do to a certain extent, but then again, uh, two, two things with power ratings. Power ratings are all, 
are based upon whatever assumptions the person behind the power ratings decides to make. And you may agree or disagree. You probably don't even know what those assumptions are. I have no problem with that. All I look for, and this goes for my own power ratings, is that they are applied consistently with no bias, no adjustments, no excuses for, oh, well, this game was played without this player or whatever. The numbers speak for themselves, and that's when I go into the interpretation of the numbers. The other thing, and this I think is important as well, is let's say a team like Ohio State. They are playing, you know, they are top 40 team, but, you know, part of their schedule, a significant part of their schedule, is against other top 40 teams because the Big Ten rates so highly. So I do consider a significant portion of the power ratings and the interpretation of them is what is the level of opposition that these teams have faced. And so when I do, for example, my own database uh, handicapping, I rate teams, uh, let's say simplistically, category A, B, C, or D, and I like to look, and I do it right now, for example, in the NBA, although the NBA is a different, entirely different style of handicapping these days. You know, do teams struggle against teams that qualify as team A's and they beat up on the team C's and D's? Uh, and that becomes especially important when you're looking to handicap the NCAA tournament, where now you have another factor that you have to consider, and that is the strength of the overall conference. But yes, I agree with you as far as looking at teams that may be overrated simply because the power rating method itself may not have been able to catch up with the current performance, either better or worse. Conference tournaments, big dance. We're going to break it all down with Andy Isco after the break. Stay tuned. Coverage continues after this. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. Get all the latest updates, breaking news, line changes, and more. Follow us on Twitter at SportsGrid, at SportsGrid Radio, at SportsGrid TV, and stay on the grid everywhere you go. Again, at SportsGrid, at SportsGrid Radio, at SportsGrid TV. You can follow me on Twitter at Teddy underscore covers. And, of course, you can follow today's guest, Andy Isco, on Twitter at Vegas Andy. That's a tough one to remember. Not a tough one to find. He is a good follow on Twitter at Vegas Andy. And Andy, before the break, we're talking about By the way, excuse me one thing. It's Vegas Go. Andy 711. I'm I sorry. I wasn't lucky enough to get a unique Vegas Andy only by myself. My apologies. That explains uh, okay. uh, Vegas Andy 711. I wrote it down. I forgot to put the 711 on there. Nonetheless, he is still a good follow in uh, the sports betting markets. I want to ask you about this specific time of the year. We talked about how it's kind of a little late February. I find it to be a tricky time in college basketball. I tend to reduce my volume at this very time of the year, say between Valentine's Day and the start of uh, the conference tournaments. Do you have that same reluctance to go balls to the wall at this time of the year? Do you find bargains in the college basketball betting marketplace at this time? And what's your volume like right now uh, compared to what it's been for most of the season? 
Well, you asked uh, in one of the prior segments how things have changed for me over the years. And one thing that I have been uh, noticing in my own play, it's not been done necessarily deliberately, but that's overall reducing the number of plays that I will make on a uh, given Saturday or even a given Tuesday or whatever over the years where I would play the board early. Now, part of it is that uh, there are much more, there are many more teams now. Uh, back in the early 1990s, there were maybe about 240 teams. So we've added about 120 or so in the 30 years uh, uh, since then. So that means there's more teams too that I had to be aware of and there's, uh, that I have to be aware of now, and there's only a limited amount of time that I can devote to each of those uh, teams. Uh, so as a result, uh, I've had to cut back, and also you combine that with the fact that the lines, as you alluded to as well, are much more difficult at this time of the year, that I need to spend a little bit more time evaluating all these games and all the extraneous factors that may not be built into let's say the Ken Palm ratings, etc. So my volume will be down, and I would say at this time of the year, there are actually two factors that, uh, one general factor is current form. I always believe that that's uh, an important factor. Uh, quality of losses, as I mentioned earlier. But at this time of the year, you also have what I mentioned earlier, the final home game for a team, and also a lot of these games are revenge games. And you don't automatically play the loser of the first game uh, in the second game. Many times you do. Many times you say, uh, you look at the matchups and you say, well, this team was so strong back then uh, that uh, even though they've adjusted the line, the team is still too strong for uh, uh, to uh, say that there's not value in laying, uh, you know, let's say eight or nine instead of perhaps uh, the uh, uh, twelve or thirteen that you uh, that you power rate the team at. So uh, to answer the basic question, my volume, which has never in the last I'd say five years been significantly great, uh, is about the same at this time of the year. And of course, part of it is also due that as we get later and later, and let's say at the end of February, as we're starting to get the conference tournaments or into early March, more teams are no longer playing. Their seasons are over, so there are fewer games that I have to even go over initially as far as which ones uh, uh, to eliminate. As I say, I think the, the biggest factor at this time of the year are I, I tend to look for quality teams playing uh, other quality teams or teams that are perhaps just a little bit below that, not necessarily using the motivation of this team needs to win to get off the on the bubble and into the tournament, but more or less, how does this team match up and where are they going as far as how far can they go, uh, let's say, when we get into March. And if I can find an attractive matchup, and that often means taking short-priced favorites but also short-priced underdogs in games that the line is suggesting should be competitive. And certainly when it comes to short favorites and short underdogs, that's all we're going to see in conference tournaments. There's not going to be after the bottom feeders get eliminated in the first round, which they will, uh, you see pretty much single-digit point spreads. You know, I mean, the WCC will have Gonzaga favored eye, but, uh, uh, and St. Mary's and the like, but you see one competitive game after the next conference tournaments, and we're going to start this next week. What do you look for at this time of the year? For me personally, the number one thing I love about conference tournaments is that in the major conferences, the number one seeds don't care. So you have good favorites to fade in major conference action. In the mid-majors, boy, you can sometimes find teams, oftentimes find teams that kind of underachieved in the regular season and power rating numbers have gone down. But you know the talent level's there, and you know it's a one big league, and you know that when conference tournament time comes, those teams are capable of stepping up. So I like to fade some of the false favorites in major conference tournament action, 
I like to bet on some of the underachieving underdogs in smaller conference tournament action. Do you have a basic strategy? Do you have a conference tourney primer? Things that you look for, things that you don't? Uh, talk to me a little bit about conference I, I think you mentioned a couple of the key points, especially when you're talking about the teams that are likely to be in the tournament as very high seeds, let's say protected seeds, like let's say a Kansas in the uh, Big 12. Very often teams like that will be happy to win their first game that they play, and often it's in the second round, sometimes maybe even the third round, depending upon how large the conference is. Get the win, and then get out of the way. You've, you've maintained a little bit of freshness, especially when some of these major conferences tend to start a little bit earlier than they have in the past, and then there's a more lengthy layoff between their final conference tournament game and their first NCAA tournament game. So yes, I do like to often go against the heavily favored teams, but not necessarily, or highly rated teams, but not necessarily in the uh, first game of uh, the tournament where they may just want to get a workout because they may have been off three, four, or five days since the regular season ended. Uh, as far as what I look for, and again, you mentioned, uh, and I agree that uh, most of these after you, get into the, after you get out of the playoff round are going to be competitively priced games with maybe uh, you know, six points or less in a, in a great majority of those games. I like to be on teams that are able to have a significant edge in free throw shooting because that becomes so important if games indeed are competitive competitive down the stretch. If your team is trying to nurse a lead, let's say they're up by four to six points and we get into the final 90 seconds, I want a team that is likely to be able to make 70, 75%, let's say closer to 75% of their free throws so that they can afford to give up a basket and match it on the end, the other end when they get fouled and go to the line. And conversely, I like to play against teams that are favored that are unable to make, say, over 70% of their free throws because those are teams that, okay, we we're going to shoot, we score, we foul, they make one out of two or oh out of two, we shoot and we narrow the gap, which makes it difficult for the favorite to cover, but at the same time it also uh, aids the underdog in doing that as well. And so one of the things when I look at free throw percentage is I like to look for matchups where the free throw percentage is five points or more greater between the two teams, especially when one team is in the low to mid-70s and the other team is in the, uh, let's say, uh, maybe high 60s or lower because I want to be able to anticipate how the game is going to go. It's already a competitive line, how the game is going to go or likely to go based upon the performances, how the game is likely to go in the final minute to three minutes of the game. Yeah, one of the things that I do less of personally, Andy, is, is the overall free throw percentages and in those shorter point spread games where I know my team's likely to have to make free throws down the stretch, I like to focus looking at the three three throw percentages of their guards, the guys that are going to have the ball in their hands and are most likely to get to the window. Big difference if you have a team with guards shooting 85% from the line versus teams with guards shooting 60% from the line. So that's one further statistical breakdown you can use if you have the time and inclination to do so. Andy, we got just a few minutes left. We have to talk a little bit about the big dance. Any sleepers that you want to talk about? Any teams that you think will be auto-fades? And, oh, by the way, tell me who's going to win it all. 
Uh, that's a nice one because this is going to be as competitive a year as we've seen really from the very start as far as uh, you know the Blue Bloods in college basketball. Who knows if some of those teams are, are going to make it. I think a couple of teams that I do have an eye on, and I did make some future bets on recently, teams that uh, are that, that uh, were so-so for a while, teams like Kansas who are playing extremely well, but their odds are relatively low right now. Team that I played, I think I got them at either 40 or 50 to 1, uh, Kentucky. They have an awful lot of talent, and we've known them to uh, make runs in the tournament when perhaps they didn't have their best team. So I think there's a team uh, of the Blue Bloods that I think could have a very good run this year. As far as the teams that maybe haven't been receiving the national recognition, team like Miami of Florida, Jim Laranega, veteran coach, took George Mason to the Final Four, took Miami, I believe, to the Elite Eight a few years ago, is uh, playing extremely well in the ACC. I do, I, and, uh, they've had an ability to win on the road, which is another factor I look at when I'm playing tournament teams, even though virtually all games are neutral site games, they're still road games because they're not playing on their home court. So uh, I, like, I like to look for teams that have shown an ability to play on the road. That's also another thing that I look for in conference tournaments, although there is also the added factor of familiarity. But uh, a team like, um, well, I mentioned uh, two teams in the Big East, Providence and Marquette. Notwithstanding Providence's ugly loss at UConn the other night, this has been a very steady t- team. They've been very competitive in the, the majority of their losses, of which they have haven't been very many this year. Uh, Marquette is another team that I think has gone relatively unnoticed because they're just not a very flashy team, but a very solid team. So I like that team. The other thing I will point out is just a general overall strategy, especially right now as we're getting close to tournament time. If you're looking to make a futures play right now, you may want to avoid playing some of these teams that are in that 15 to 20 to 1 range because once the tournament seedings are out, those 15 to 20 to 1 team, 20 to 1 teams, based upon their matchups, you could find them perhaps 25 to 40 to 1. And conversely, teams that are uh, you know 40 or 50 to 1 right now and are playing well, you might want to consider playing them if you like them now, because when the seedings are out, they may very well end up being in that 15 to 20 to 1 range as, uh, uh, as we see it happens, especially as the conference tournaments unfold. So you listed all the teams out of the Big East. You didn't list my sleeper, the UConn Huskies. Um, I give them a chance. They played extremely well the other night against Providence, but uh, uh, I don't know where their odds are at right now, but I would imagine they're probably in that Marquette range. Yeah, I would, uh, again, you know, um, entertainment purposes only. I think UConn's live to make a deep, deep run. And Isco, you have what? I got about a minute left. Promote yourself, my friend, and uh, why don't you give folks out there uh, a bettable opinion for today's college basketball card on Saturday. Well, unfortunately, haven't done a lot of handicapping. And then the one game that I do like tomorrow on, 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 on Saturday today is one of the early starting 9 a.m. games, so I don't know that I should use that because uh, win or lose, it may be too late for a lot of the uh, uh, the, uh, the the listeners out there. Uh, TheLogicalApproach.com is my website. Haven't done a lot of posting stuff for the college basketball, but we're starting to really get in-depth with some of the NBA analysis uh, that I do. And I haven't really seen a lot of the lines uh, to, to really have had a chance to uh, play them a lot, so I can't really do much in the uh, in the way of, uh, uh, of of games. But I'll take a look. For example, I'm going to take a look at uh, uh, let's say a um, where is it here? Uh, Syracuse at Pittsburgh. I'm showing uh, a line roughly around uh, Pittsburgh six and a half. I'm going to take a look at Syracuse in this game. Yeah, I had my fun with Syracuse the other night, uh, and a non-competitive loss. That did not 
please me or my bankroll. Andy Isco, TheLogicalApproach.com. Thank you so much for your time, effort, and energy. Best of luck this weekend. When cover it continues, yeah, we're going to talk more college hoops. Stay tuned. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. We're here in the home stretch. Cover it with Teddy Covers. If you missed any portion of today's program. If you like this type of sports betting talk, check out the podcast versions. Every show that I've ever done for the Sports Grid Radio Network is available podcast style. You can download it and consume it at your convenience. You can go back and re-listen to something you might have missed at the beginning. You can sit at home and take notes instead of sitting in your car and trying to remember, what team was he just talking about? Yeah. Download the podcast version. Just wherever you download your podcasts, major podcast outlets, minor podcast outlets, just search Cover It or Cover It with Teddy Covers and download and consume at your convenience. I want to talk a little college basketball, but I don't want to talk Saturday slate, not today. I'm going to give you an early start game for tomorrow. We've finally seen some adjustment in the betting markets for the 11 and 17 straight up Ohio State Buckeyes. They were a top 40 team. They were a top 50 team. Now they're only a top 70 team. <laughs> Ohio State's not a top 70 team. <laughs> but Ken Palm says they are. And their statistical profile says they are. In fact, offensively, they adjusted offense. According to the hardcore stats, they're the 27th best offense in the country. I'm not buying those stats. I'm just not. When you see a team that's been power rated in the wrong place for weeks on end, for months on end, you don't think about it. You fade them. Illinois, Ohio State, this is a dead team walking. When you've watched, if you've watched Ohio State, if you watched them play for the last month, adversity hits, they put their heads down. Adversity hits, you get the wrong energy. They might be a bet-on team when the Big Ten tournament comes around. If they win that first game, they might be a real bet-on team. But the Illini were just 5 for 28 from three-point range in the first meeting. And still one by nine, covered with room to spare. I think this one will be relatively easy. Illinois, take up against Ohio State. Best of luck with all your wagers. We'll see you again tomorrow right here on Covering with Teddy.